heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 134, covering the week of August 13th through August 17th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like us on Facebook at Abbeville Institute and subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you don't want to find all those things, just go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see all of our social media buttons. While you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. You'll also get our daily dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and a weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. You can also get this podcast by downloading our app. Just go to your favorite web app store whether it's Google Play, iTunes, and download the Abbeville Institute app. You get this podcast along with all of our all of our other lectures and our mobile uh, access to our website. And don't forget that we exist on your generous contributions alone, so if you'd like to help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Support. Click on that, and you'll have options for our donor options, and you can donate monthly or annually. All of those plans are there on that particular interface. So go on out there and do that. We appreciate your support, and your support helps keep this podcast going and our conferences going and our website going and all those things. So uh, it helps provide scholarships for students. So think about that. Everything we do is free of charge. Our website is free. Our lectures are free on the website. Of course, our conferences, we do charge a fee for the conferences, but all the other stuff we do is free, and your donation helps keep all of that stuff free. So uh, please help us continue to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. All right, so all that said, let's talk about the week that was at the Institute, and uh, three of the pieces that are published this week actually came from our summer school. So if you've not attended our summer school, this is the kind of stuff you're missing, and all of the pieces have to do with two particular themes. One is music. Actually, I would say three themes. One is music. One is reconciliation, which we've been talking about a lot on the website and, of course, on this podcast. And the last is the benefits of a rural lifestyle. Now, uh, it's interesting because we... Th- this is, an, uh, I think, a topic that... Um, it's it's an uh, interesting one for debate. Um, is a rural lifestyle superior to an urban lifestyle? And if it's not, why not? If it is, why is it? And so this is something that uh, we can look at standard of living. We can look at the uh, amount of work that someone has to do to provide for themselves. I mean, there's various ways to look at this. It also, you need to understand, or what it, what it can produce, is something in the arts. Now, it's often thought that a rural lifestyle cannot produce anything artistic. In fact, if you go back and look at some of the things that were said about Southern art in the antebellum period, when I say art, I'm talking about literature and, of course, uh, the visual arts. Uh, When you look at these things, and even music, those are the arts. When you look at Southern art or Southern arts in the antebellum period, one of the critiques was that the South could not produce uh, valuable literature because it was a rural environment and you can't have literature in a, in a rural environment it just can't exist you have to have somebody living in a much more urban environment to produce 
high-quality literature. And I would say it's the exact opposite. In order to produce the arts, you have to have uh, a canvas. And by that, I mean not a physical canvas, but there has to be something to write about, sing about, or produce in a visual artistic form. And the thing that the South always had, and this is why even Northerners would write about the South, it was exotic to people. And it had a real, tangible culture that you could write about and sing about and produce some type of visual artwork for. It's not to say the North didn't have some of that stuff, too. I mean, you look at Hawthorne, and while his books are quite boring, there is a tangible culture that he's writing about there in New England. An awful one, but one that he's writing about nevertheless. So you have to have something real to write about. It's why the South has been so studied, because it's not a plastic culture. It's something real, it's something organic, it's something that comes not just from the environment, from the place, but from the people that are in that place. And certainly the environment can contribute to that. I mean, there's a reason why Southerners were agrarian, because that's what the environment allowed. You could make a lot of money in agriculture. You could make a lot of money producing cash crops in the South. And so everyone recognizes North and South. A lot of Northerners moved to the South and set up plantations too. In fact, right after the war, Harriet Beecher Stowe's son bought a plantation in Florida so he could try to make some money. And one of the things, I mean, this is Harriet Beecher Stowe's son now, the, the woman that wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And one of the things she and her son began to complain about was the labor in the South. They couldn't get uh, former slaves to work like uh, white Northerners, and they complained about it all the time. So here you have these people, these supposedly morally superior noble people coming down to the South and uh, exhibiting some very racist statements about African Americans in the South. So uh, there's all kinds of this stuff going on. It's just that nobody really talks about it. Of course, Southerners, white and black Southerners, had established a labor relationship over a very long period of time. And some of the labor studies that have been done, and this is something entirely separate from what I'm doing today, but um, for example, the, the task system, which was a, a system of labor used on rice plantations in the South, uh, was a much different labor system than the gang system. And when the slaves who were freed during the war were co-opted to work for the Union Army, there was a lot of resentment because the Union Army forced these people to work in a gang labor type system, and they would say, that's not how we do it here. So there was always a certain labor relationship in any type of environment in the South. And one of the things about the New South that I've, I've always found interesting is how this paternalistic attitude in the South transplanted itself into, into industrial labor. Um, and it's something that I think more needs to be done, more work needs to be done on to look at uh, how that paternalistic attitude would filter into southern factories and how they, how they handled labor relations in those areas. And certainly there was uh, northern influence in labor relations, but southerners did things a little differently. And I've, I wrote a piece on that topic about four years ago for the website. Um, and it's, it's something that I think is uh, 
it's quite interesting that people, if you're if you're interested in history, need to do some work on. But that also factors into music and how people talked about music and how people talked about the South. If you think about music and Southern music, and it's one thing we talked a lot about at the conference, what is the lyrical content mostly focus on in Southern music? It's pride of place and people. It's either affirmation or defiance. And when people sang about the South, it didn't matter if they were Northern songwriters or Southern songwriters, you generally had uh, discussions of a great climate, sunny people, you know, warm disposition, good food, and beautiful women, and great manners. This is what people talked about. They're, they're talking about a real culture. And it didn't matter if they were white or black. It was home for all of these people. And so that is, I think, the key to understanding why this music was so important in reconciliation and why the agrarian lifestyle was so important for reconciliation and why Southerners, the agrarians, for example, the fugitives, were saying the agrarian lifestyle is essential for humanity because it can produce things like excellent music. And it's not to say it's a utopia. I mean, no one in the South believed they were living in a perfect society. But, as Hank Williams Jr. said, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. They could recognize the imperfect part of humanity in the South, but they also saw it, and this is something that was that Alan Harrelson brought up in his presentations, which we'll put those on, on the website when we have them, uh, it was uh, of the agrarian vision could factor in to how they viewed heaven, you see. So that agrarian lifestyle produced a worldview that was different. Even That would even filter into the suburban area. So the first piece of the week was is a long essay on Ronnie Van Zant written by Jeff Rogers. And he presented this at the summer school. He actually left one part of the, out of the essay that he talked about at the summer school. But um, regardless, it's, it's mostly the same essay. And Ronnie Van Zant grew up in a suburban environment in Florida. But he loved to hunt and he loved to fish. In fact, he loved fishing more than anything else. And when you look at the lyrical content of... Ronnie Van Zant's songs for Leonard Skinnerd, what you find is in some ways an agrarian, but distinctively Southern. And so people will criticize Van Zant for being a quote-unquote redneck and uh, all these kind of things. But he was a working class Southerner in the 1960s and 70s. And I think Dr. Rogers does a nice job getting into all the little nuances of this. You know, Ronnie Van Zandt is seen as some type of, of conservative reactionary, but he's also a, a guy that was writing about gun control, for example, in Saturday Night Special. Um, and so, you know, what is he? He's he, Even in Sweet Home Alabama, which, as I think was an excellent line, he said, look, if there's any song that came close to being a 20th century version of Dixie, it's Sweet Home Alabama. 
It is the Southern Anthem of the 20th century. The late 20th century. You know, Dixie written in the 19th century. And in the 20th century, you had Sweet Home Alabama. But even in that particular song, there are some lines that would make you think that there's a little tongue-in-cheek here. Van Zant's having some fun with that. And so I think Dr. Rogers does a fantastic job pulling all this stuff out of Ronnie Van Zant's lyrics and explaining the mindset of somebody in the 20th century South, in the 20th century suburban South, but still very much in tune and in touch with the antebellum agrarian South and the postbellum agrarian South. You see, I mean, when you look at the agrarians in the 1930s, they're writing about the postbellum agrarian South, not the antebellum agrarian South, the postbellum agrarian South, and a longing to hang on to it. And when you look at Van Zant's All I Can Do Is Write About It, and he's, he's writing about what would happen if concrete overtook the South, what would happen if this beautiful environment was gone. And it's not some type of 1960s hippie uh, superficial examination of, you know, as Dr. Rogers says, you know, they, they, paradi they pave paradise and put up a parking lot, which was, I mean, there's nothing to it. This, all I can do is write about it, is real because Van Zant was really in it. And it's a different feel to it. It's a lament. It's an agrarian lament. Deeper than anything else that uh, all these green, quote-unquote greens were doing in the 60s. Because that, in some ways, was based on a pseudo-intellectual, political-philosophical understanding of American society. Van Zant's understanding of, of Southern society was at the core of all I can do is write about it. He also wrote about race relations and the Ballad of Curtis Lowe's. I mean, this is, a, this is a man that was producing music that spoke to Southern humanity and also to Southern society. And if you're not a Leonard Skinner fan, if you don't like the music, you could at least appreciate Ronnie Van Zant's lyrical content as a form of poetry. I mean, that's something we, we talked a lot about at the summer school, that Southern music is just Southern poetry put to song, which, as most people don't realize, almost all poetry was, in was intended to be that way for a long period of time. This is why you had bards. They would sing the verses because that's a way to remember things. So, Van Zandt is a nice example of that particular part of the Southern experience. And then I'm going to skip over the, the book review we had, but go into a piece I wrote, Anything is Nice if It Comes from Dixieland. Uh, that's actually the title of a song written in the early 20th century and performed by the most popular singer of the 20th, early 20th century, Billy Martin of Colorado. This song, Anything is Nice if It Comes from Dixieland, was written by two New Yorkers. One was a Polish Jew, the other was a native of New York. So it's funny because these, these New Yorkers, this guy from Colorado, is singing a song written by New Yorkers about Dixie. The most popular radio program in the 1920s, one of the most popular, the Happiness Boys out of New York, uh, had a, 
iconic song about uh, I'd rather be alone in the South. They'd love the South. From New York, the Happiness Boys. Highest paid radio act, singing a little song about how they'd rather be in the South than anywhere else. It's better than New York. The weather's nicer. The people are nicer. The food's better. You can stretch your arms. You stretch your legs. There's something to it. The image that we use on the website is actually the image from the sheet music uh, from that particular uh, time period. Uh, actually, it's Are You From Dixie Because I'm From Dixie Too, which was a very popular song. And it has an image of a couple of uh, southern planters with a plantation behind it, a woman picking cotton, plantation house. I mean, this was, it was, the southern lifestyle was seen as the epitome of ease and luxury. It was an old aristocratic understanding of American life. It was the only Amer real American aristocracy. If you look at northern aristocracy in the postbellum in the Gilded Age, it was a model, a caricature of European society. But in the south, it was something real and organic. And of course, the manners were transplanted from this, uh, from this old English cavalier society as well. Um, the gentleman, the lady. It didn't mean everyone always acted this way. And of course, we can talk about how Southerners did not always follow through on this and how they uh, conducted themselves. But it was the image. This is why H.L. Mencken said, I mean, the South is the only, the Southern aristocracy is the only real aristocracy America has ever produced. It's the only valuable aristocracy America has ever produced. But all this was in a process of reconciliation. Northerners loved the South. In fact, the majority of Northerners throughout American history loved the South, and they admired the South, and they got along with Southerners. It's only a small faction and fraction of American society that didn't. That was critical of it. And I, I began this particular piece with a discussion of... Uh, Teddy Roosevelt's invitation of Booker T. Washington to dine at the White House. And most historians focus on the Southern response to this, which was extremely nasty uh, from, in some areas. You know, Pitchfork Ben Tillman's response was, was nasty. It was vicious, uh, saying this was going to lead to a mongrel race. And everyone thought, oh, look, at Southerners are. It was only the South, apparently, that responded this way. Yet, if you go back and look at the newspapers... You'll find that, for example, William Jennings Bryan, the uh, Democratic candidate for president in 1896 and 1900, uh, had a newspaper entitled The which was in Nebraska. And Bryan was no race baiter. I mean, this is not Pitchfork Ben Tillman. And he showed a lot of sympathy towards African Americans. He argued they were capable of self-government. But he also didn't think that Race relations should be disrupted. This is a quote from William Jennings Bryan. He, quote, hoped that both of them, meaning Roosevelt and Washington, will upon reflection realize the wisdom of, of abandoning their purpose to wipe out race lines if they entertain such a purpose. Professor Washington's work as an educator will be greatly impaired if he allows it to be understood that his object is to initiate the members of his race into the social circles of the whites, and he will do injustice to those of his own color 
if he turns their thoughts away from intellectual and moral development to the less substantial advantages, if there are any advantages at all, to be derived from social equality. This is William Jennings Bryan. The man that's often held up as the real progressive. You see, this is because that was the dominant attitude of Americans north and south in 1901. He wrote this less than three weeks after Washington showed up at the White House and dined with the president. Now, you can, you can look at that event, and I think it's, it's clear what, what Teddy Roosevelt was trying to do here. This is in the spirit of reconciliation. This is also the guy, Teddy Roosevelt, who, who ordered that all confiscated Confederate flags be returned to the South in 1905, who admired his unreconstructed mother from Georgia. And every president in the late 19th and early 20th century did the exact same thing. William McKinley stood for Dixie when he was in Atlanta. Coolidge and Harding were pictured with Confederate flags. Taft spoke to the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Grover Cleveland was at a Confederate monument dedication in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, so it didn't matter if you were from the north or the south. The dominant position, north and south, was that the south was a valuable contributor to American society for a variety of reasons. They weren't just a bunch of deplorables to be castigated and cast aside. They were valuable. And the music echoed that. Are you from Dixie? Anything is nice if it comes from Dixieland. I'd rather be alone in the south. And then you have Louis Armstrong's when It's Sleepy Time Down South, written by four African-Americans. And people would look at this song and say it's extremely racist now. And I actually linked a video, a music video he made of the song in 1942, which people just pan as being completely racist. Louis Armstrong, and one of the dancers in the, in the piece, I didn't know this, but if you go to the YouTube comments, one of the, one of the women, uh, woman there is commenting on it. It's one of her uh, family members as one of the dancers, and he became a very popular African-American actor and pioneering actor. But he's in this particular uh, song, this music video, so to speak, dancing. But you look at the lyrical content, you say it's extremely racist. It's all written by African-Americans. In fact, one of them was a, a prominent songwriter in, in the Harlem Renaissance. So you find that this was the attitude north or south. You have Phil Harris singing, That's What I Like About the South. Harris was actually not born in the South. He considered the South his home, Tennessee. But he was the most popular entertainer of his day. And in fact, the piece on Friday by Tom Landis gets us a nice uh, remembrance of Phil Harris uh, after Phil Harris died in 1995. And who Phil Harris was and why he was important. He's, he's, he's one of the most important people on the Jack Benny show. He's the voice uh, in uh, the Jungle Book for Baloo. Uh, this is a guy, he was in the Aristocats for Disney Films. I mean, this is an important guy. And of course, Disney Films were much more interested in having a reconciliation, reconciliationist vision of the South as well in the 1940s and 50s. And 60s, that only changed when you got to about the 70s and 80s. But even then, it didn't change very much. It wasn't until the modern age when the South had to be completely cleansed from anything that they do. 
So this is part of reconciliation. It's a, it's an understanding, and and Washington Booker T. Washington really personified that. I mean, it was this is the man that said, "Cast down your buckets where you are to white and black Southerners." Look, we need to work together. This is also a man that said Confederate monuments needed to be built to the best men of Southern society to honor those men. That is reconciliation. It's recognizing the valuable contributions of each group. And unfortunately, not everyone in the South did that. You had your pitchfork Ben Tillmans. And that's a stain on Southern society. Uh, Francis Butler Simpkins' biography of Ben Tillman is an interesting book. Um, and we've, we published an essay about Simpkins, who was a great Southern historian. Uh, but he's highly critical of Tillman. Uh, for his activities, to say the least. And rightly so. But you have this reconciliationist vision, and the, and the piece on uh, Thursday, uh, The Sounds of the Mississippi Delta in Appalachia, by Michael Martin. We, we published a piece um, last week on Martin on Lead Belly, and of course he was going to do something with that at the summer school, but he did this instead, and it's a great piece as well. Um, talking about a couple of uh, a couple of songwriters, one a man named William Dockery, um, or at least uh, that's the man who not 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 the musician. The musician is a guy named Charlie Patton from the Delta, but this guy named Dockery was a plantation owner, and this is where Charlie Patton grew up on Dockery's plantation and how that influenced his life as a singer, as a songwriter. The environment, the farm, was was important to Charlie Patton's life, a man of mixed race, like Booker T. Washington. Uh, And when you look at the organization of that Dockery's farm, that Dockery's plantation, it's, uh, it's very much like an old southern plantation. And so that that entire labor environment is interesting to get into that. But then you had this this Charlie Patton, uh, who was a a very popular uh, blues singer in the Delta. Um, and I love how he gets into the sounds of that particular area. Um, so that's one part of it. Uh, and then you had a bluegrass singer named Roscoe Holcomb, who again had that Appalachia sound, and how that was born from a place, from a people in a place. You see, it's the culture that creates these things, and it's the environment, the rural environment that lets it happen. This is why that's important. This is why we ran a, a, a book review from Wendell Berry, or actually the, the review is written by Tom Rash, but the book is What Are People For?, published in 1990. It's still in, still in print by Wendell Berry because he talks about the importance of the rural environment and the small community to producing great things. One of the things that people don't realize, we it's often, you know, Athens is held up, Athens, Greece, as the beginning of Western civilization, the, the pinnacle of Western civilization. Athens was a very small place. And even though it was cosmopolitan, it still had a lot of farmers around it. Small place, though. Not a large city. Maybe thirty to 60,000 citizens. 
That's it. And yet it produced all of that great intellectual uh, material. Philosophy, science, the arts, all of that. But it was small. It didn't, you didn't have to have a metropolis, a megacity to produce these things. And this is, I think, in fact, those areas reduce the influence of culture because it, it wipes you out. There's, it, becomes, it becomes inhumane. It becomes nameless, faceless. Um, you don't have the same type of interest in humanity. People. What are people for? In a rural environment, you have that. In a small town, you have that. In small community churches, you have that. You have what are people for. You have the focus on people, not some machine that's grinding people down. It produces great art, whether it's music, whether it's the visual arts, whether it's literature. The South has a story to tell because of the people that were there and the small nature of it. It's something that we talk a lot about at the Institute. Small is better. Small is beautiful. Decentralization, political decentralization. But that's impossible unless you have a real tangible thing to defend. And it's not some abstraction. It's a real place. These singers, these blues singers, these uh, southern rock singers were singing about a real place. And even northerners recognized that when they sang about how wonderful the South was. It was a simplistic view, of course. There's nothing, there's nothing meaty to it. There's nothing you can just hang on to. It doesn't stick to your ribs. But it's fun and light and airy, and it's what people thought about the South. It's why they wanted to go vacation there. It's why they want... Oh, it's, it's romantic. And northerners were influenced by that romantic vision. But nevertheless... There was some truth to it. They knew it, and it's why they wanted to go there. It's why the southern, southern music, it's why the southern songwriter, it's why the southern lifestyle is so important to maintain. Because it produces great things, great literature, great art, and you can't have those things without a real culture. And you can't have those, and if we don't have reconciliation, we're going to lose all those things. What are we left with? New England. There's a reason why New Englanders want to leave New England. They think if they just leave New England, everything will be better. What they don't understand is they take New England with them if they're a Yankee. I mean, there's Northerners and Yankees. If they're a Yankee, they take it with them and they ruin wherever they go. Until next time, good day. Good day.